The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The Ukrainian people are united and resilient, and I learned that the EU and NATO are also similarly united. Putin is acting in a highly intentional way because he knows he has leverage from his energy dominance. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We are going to need to rethink our relationships in Western Europe. We do not want to get into a situation where Russia and NATO get into an armed conflict. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Kiev is still standing and under Ukrainian control. President Zelensky being called a hero on social media. But how long can this last? We'll have the latest on the war in Ukraine, the latest as well from Washington, where sanctions now cover the Russian Central Bank. And President Biden is now calling for billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine. We'll talk about it coming up with Stephen Mull, former ambassador to Poland, now vice provost for global affairs at the University of Virginia, an authority on sanctions and, of course, everything that's going on on the other side of Ukraine's western border. The Pentagon says Vladimir Putin, though, still has not unleashed the full wrath of his military. We're going to talk strategy, what the next couple of days might look like with retired General Ben Hodges, former commander, U.S. Army Europe, now Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. We've got the signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us. The headlines have been fast and furious from Ukraine. We couldn't stop watching all weekend. The U.S. banning transactions with Russia's central bank. Now the EU approving new sanctions against Russian oligarchs. The U.K. telling ports not to service Russian-flagged vehicles. There's another pile of headlines like this every day. All this fighting intensifies around Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, as well as the capital itself, now fighting in the suburbs of Kyiv. Remembering on Friday, a senior defense official said Kyiv could fall within days. It hasn't. But there's a large concentration of Russian military about 15 miles north of the city, and we're watching it closely. So is the Pentagon, where spokesman John Kirby today says the Russian military is learning from all of this and has not yet used its full power in Ukraine, suggesting that well, much heavier fighting and shelling could be on the way. Now, the other side of this story, of course, is the refugee crisis. We've talked a lot about this the past week. More than 500,000 refugees have now fled Ukraine, according to Filippo Grady, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Most have gone to Poland, but also to Hungary, Romania, Slovakia. And the U.S. has said that number could climb to 4 million. President Biden because of this, is asking for billions of dollars now, 6.4 billion in aid to Ukraine and to help manage the refugee crisis. We spoke today with Congressman Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, told me on Balance of Power today that Congress will find the money. And I think we'll give the president everything he's asking for. Uh, he is on top of this. He's demonstrated uh, for the last several weeks uh, that he's in his wheelhouse. And we're going to respond 
I think, in a very positive way. Since I spoke with the congressman, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer chimed in. He says Congress will work on what he calls a robust aid package. So something's coming. And this is where we start now with Stephen Mull. I've been looking forward to having him back. A real expert on sanctions, former ambassador to Poland, now vice provost for global affairs at the University of Virginia. Stephen, thanks for joining us. We've added many more layers since you and I last spoke. In terms of sanctions, we're now talking about SWIFT. We're now talking about Russia's central bank. Is the Biden administration out of options now? Have we thrown everything shy of energy at Russia? Uh, well, we've, we've done a lot. Uh, thanks. It's great to be with you, Joe. Um, it, it, you pointed out a very interesting carve-out. Europeans, of course, get 40% of their gas from uh, from Russia, and they're a little bit worried about uh, cutting that off in the middle of winter. So they've kept that off open as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as an option for them to continue to buy. The SWIFT, uh, the exclusion from SWIFT, doesn't apply to the entire Russian financial system the way we excluded uh, Iran uh, back in uh, 2012. Uh, it was really targeted more at uh, some of the biggest banks. And so I think that will give the Russians, it'll be inconvenient for them. Uh, they'll have problems with credit cards and doing basic financial transactions for a few weeks. But I think over time, they're going to be able to get around that. Well, so you remember that, that was the that was the so-called nuclear option, which uh, I, I, I hesitate to use the term because now we're actually talking about the possibility of exactly. nuclear weapons here. But this was, I don't know, a better way to say it. This is the end all. You kick about a swift. My God, you've done it. It's only happened once before. But now we're hearing questions about that. You just added a few caveats. We heard from Jamie Dimon today, uh, who was at the, the J.P. Morgan Leverage Finance Conference, a big confab happening down in Miami. And Dimon says there are ways to work around being booted out of swift. A sanction says I cannot do business with you. A swift thing says I can't use a communication to do business with you. I can still do business with you. And there are a lot of workarounds on swift, so they're different tools, we used for different reasons. So, Ambassador, does this impact Russia or not? Well, it, 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 it does. And I think of all the sanctions announced over the weekend, and by the way, the, the big story here is how quickly the West is coming together. As mm -hmm. of last Friday, major European powers were opposed to doing anything on SWIFT or for the Russian Central Bank. That all changed in a heartbeat over the weekend. And I think of the two categories of sanctions, the sanctions on the Central Bank are going to be much more painful because it basically puts $630 billion with a B uh, foreign reserves, Russian foreign reserves, out of reach, uh, which will make it very difficult for the Russian financial authorities uh, and fiscal authorities and monetary authorities to prop up the ruble, which you probably saw today is beginning yes. to crash. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to have the whole huge follow-on effects, shortages, uh, difficulty in financing trade, uh, huge inflationary pressures will, will be unleashed. So um, Russia, the Russian economy today is on the verge of panic, and that's hmm. just because of that sanction alone. Now, if you look out the, over the course of weeks, or maybe even months, Ambassador, how long does it take for the full impact of these sanctions to sink in? There have been concerns that it might be a lot longer than, for instance, it will take Russia to take over Ukraine. Well, we saw, uh, we saw the impact today with the closure of the Russian stock market. Mm -hmm. How long uh, it will take, though, to start getting Putin, who, you know, we don't know if he's making decisions rationally or not. Uh, the sanctions alone will probably not be enough to reverse this invasion, right. uh, certainly within the, next, uh, within the next couple of weeks. However, you add up a few other things. 
Russian oligarchs start getting chased out of Western Europe. There's a European-American task force that's getting to work immediately to track down and freeze their assets. And the resistance of the Ukrainian soldiers in the streets of Kiev and Kharkiv yeah. uh, fighting back. The Russians are running into a lot of resistance. So all of these things cumulatively might get the Russians to back out. But but who knows? He doesn't seem to be making decisions very rationally. Do you Mr. take Putin. do you take seriously the 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 the, call, the talks, if I were negotiations, whatever we want to call this, between? Uh, Russia and Ukraine along the border of Belarus. Russia says Ukraine wants to do a second round. Is this just window dressing, or, or are they meaningful? Well, it's, hard. it's you know it's always good to be talking uh, instead of fighting. Uh, it's hard to be optimistic, though. The Russians sent as their chief negotiator a former culture minister who it doesn't seem to be particularly empowered to negotiate a, a ceasefire. Uh, it seems that the Russians are really just trying to use these talks as a vehicle to get the Zelensky government to surrender and, and, and resign. The fact that they've agreed to meet a second day tomorrow, let's see what comes of, of that. Maybe these, this impending sense of financial panic in, in Russia, combined with Russia, you know, by the hour, there's some new isolation of, uh, of, of Russia. Let's see if that contributes uh, to, to a ceasefire. But it, it's not looking good. I mean, Russian troops are still pouring into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And a lot more apparently could be on the way. Uh, it makes you wonder, you know, exactly how much Vladimir Putin is throwing at the matter right now. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on this hour in terms of military strategy. But what do you make of the president's request, Ambassador, $6.4 billion to, uh, to help Ukraine, but also to help manage the refugee crisis? You might have heard me mention now 500,000, according to the U.N., 500,000 people on the way to 4 million have already left the country. Is, is $6 billion enough? Well, we'll see. And, you know, if, that, if past U.S. responses to humanitarian crises of this uh, scope are any indication, uh, if it's not enough, I have a feeling there'll be more. We want to make sure that our frontline NATO allies, Romania, Hungary, Poland, are not swamped and, and overwhelmed by, by all of these, uh, because then that in turn creates security problems uh, for them as well as for, for us. So the, the polls, especially, have really been great, uh, opening the doors, letting everybody in yeah. and trying to help them. Friends of mine in Poland have gone down to the border to pick up strangers, strange women and their, and their children to offer them a place to stay. Uh, so it, it, it's really amazing uh, how the polls are responding, but they're going to need a lot of help to do it. So it's a good thing yeah. we're moving in that direction. Ambassador, you've mentioned a couple of times or referred a couple of times uh, to the, the mental capacity of Vladimir Putin. And this is something that has come up a lot lately, especially following his speech of two weekends ago when he really seemed to go off the rails. A lot of people who have known him for years say he's not a rational actor at this point. I know there are concerns about that within the intelligence community, but I wonder, based on your experience in the diplomatic community, what do you do when conversations like that begin? How do you find out? How do you know who you're dealing with? Well, uh, that's when uh, uh, any intelligence service worth its uh, <laughs> worth its salt uh, gets gets to work and uh, using its uh, sources uh, that are close to the wheels of power to find out what's uh, what, what's going on, and then at the same time uh, to encourage people to stand up uh, against him. I mean, it's it's actually phenomenal when you see that the thousands of Russians who've been arrested protesting against him mm -hmm. uh, over the weekend, six hundred leading Russian scientists. Uh, signed an appeal demanding the end to the war. Um, so it's clear. And then the rising economic distress 
um, all of that's going to create rising opposition to to Putin, and we should be working through whatever means we can covertly uh, as well as uh, overtly uh, to strengthen and embolden uh, people who are trying to get Putin to pull back. I figure he's not going to take a cognitive test like uh, former President Donald Trump. Put that out to the media. <laughs> Ambassador Stephen Mull, really great pleasure to have you back. We'd like to stay in touch with you as we learn more and the sanctions keep falling from the sky. Former Ambassador of Poland with us. We assemble the panel next on Sound On. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are on the way. It's the fastest hour in politics. We'll check traffic and markets next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So there's a run on the banks in Russia. You've seen images on social media, people lined up around the block to get to an ATM. Very real results of economic sanctions, or at least worries about what's going to come. The point is the disruption is already happening. And in some cases, by the way, those machines were empty. Even Netflix is getting into the act. Have you, did you see this on the terminal? As the world turns against Russian aggression, Netflix says it will not be adding Russian channels to its service under regulations that were to take effect March 1st. This is apparently a big splash in the Moscow Times. Meanwhile, Walt Disney, a Walt Disney music executive, said banking sanctions against Russia will cut into revenue from its movie Encanto's soundtrack. Encanto? Sarah's dancing on the other side of the glass. My kid loved that movie. Yeah, the songs from that movie were translated into Russian, Ukrainian, frequently downloaded on YouTube in both countries. Well, guess what? Not good for Disney. It's been remarkable to see the private sector consolidate around all of this. BP's another one. You saw it divesting billions of dollars in a Russian energy company. Let's assemble the panel, get their take on things after a very busy and newsy weekend in Russia and Ukraine. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Rick, is this what you had in mind when we started talking about sanctions? They kicked them out of SWIFT. They got the central bank. They're chasing the oligarchs. But to see the private sector uh, get into the mode here, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and around the world, private companies turning against Russia, it's been a remarkable thing to watch, almost in a coordinated fashion. Yeah, it's a fantastic combination of government leadership, right? You know, casting the first stone, you know, setting the standard. Uh, and, and Vladimir Putin kind of playing into the narrative of being the bad guy, right? I mean, he's done everything he could to isolate himself uh, over the last few weeks and months. And, uh, and the Western governments uh, uh, have really taken good leadership. And so the private sector community stands up, looks at that and says, my God, we want to be on the right side of history That's here. Right. Let's do something about it. Because it impacts business in the end, right, Jeannie? I mean, there's the matter of principle, but these companies don't want to be associated uh, with someone, a crazy person who's starting a war, obviously. Is there any government coordination, though? Is the White House calling Netflix saying, hey, you're not going to put those movies on, are you? 
you know, it, it, it's true that these companies, you know, they feel they have obviously a bottom line obligation to their shareholders, but they also have a moral obligation. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this not just with companies, you've seen it with, with you know, sports figures, you've seen it with people in, you know, ballet, opera, media, all, all over the place who have, you know, taken a really hard stance on this. And I do think that if the White House isn't, that there should be some effort at coordinating. But I don't even think it really takes that when you look at how this thing has evolved and how, you know, this is really seems to be the efforts of one man who has, you know, bent on destruction of so many people. You're mentioning 500,000 people leaving the country, yes. just as an example. And so, you know, people view that, businesses view that, and they do make a step to, you know, uh, take a stand and as they should. Is the hunt for Red October forbidden now? This is the conversation happening in the control room. One ping only, please. I'm sorry, I'm watching that anyway. The refugee crisis, Rick, is real. It's just starting, actually. If we have 500,000 people crossing the border now, uh, and we're not sure what to do with them, Poland has limited capacity. Four million streaming into countries like Romania, Slovakia creates a massive problem. How do you manage, Rick? And are they making plans for it now, a humanitarian crisis right next door to a war? Well, there's only so much you can plan when you have an influx of that many millions of people uh, and, and no resources. They're getting to these borders, you know, with basically just the, the goods that they have in their hands. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a very difficult situation. It's going to require a lot more aid and support than what's currently being talked about. I mean, this idea that somehow, you know, $6.2 billion in a supplemental or maybe even the new budget uh, is somehow going to plug a gap, both militarily and humanitarily. Uh, it's just it's just not going to make it. Uh, we, we spent 26 billion, 24 billion in today's dollars in Afghanistan when the Russians invaded there, uh, both militarily and with uh, human uh, uh, cost uh, and toll that existed there. Uh, this is just the beginning of what I think people need to be prepared for. And it'll be interesting to see how much of this that Joe Biden wants to prepare the American public for during the State of the Union tomorrow. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a great way to point to the State of the Union, Jeannie, because, you know, we talked about this earlier uh, today on Bloomberg on Balance of Power. That speech is going to be rewritten, I'm assuming, right up until the point of it being delivered. This is such a fluid situation. How do you craft poetry for a speech like that in a time like this? Yeah, I mean, this has, you know, upended not just the world order, but of course, what the president was planning on doing and saying tomorrow yeah. night and his presidency, he's got an opportunity here, a moment to portray strength and competence. You know, by most estimations, the White House has handled this crisis so far very well. And he's got to both, you know, look where we've been and look forward and put this all into context and make the case to the American public that it is worth some modicum of pain and the ambassador was talking to you about this yep. in order to, you know, ensure that we do take Russia, you know, on and that we do stand up for democracy in the Ukraine and Europe and around the world. So the president is going to be working hard to make that case tomorrow night. But the speech is certainly changing by the moment as events yeah. unfold. And it's going to overshadow a lot of the other issues he wants to get to, Rick. Do you hit it right off the top if you're the president? Uh, hard to tell. Uh, you know, it is not what's on top of mind of most people. I mean, even though we're obsessed with it and it's yeah, on right. the news constantly, there are other, you know, kitchen table issues that, frankly, people want to hear from him on. So he grabs inflation by both horns tomorrow night. Rick and Jeannie are with us for the hour here on Sound On. We'll reassemble the panel coming up and next. We speak with retired General Ben Hodges about the military strategy 
What exactly is Russia waiting for, or is this it? We'll talk to the general next. This is Bloomberg. People are watching this happen on their phones. They're watching a war in Europe unfold on their iPhones. Never mind just the TV. The revolution is being televised. Well, it's not a revolution. And there are a lot of concerns about what's going to be coming in the next couple of days. People have been, at least in this country, so impressed by the Ukrainian forces, by President Zelensky putting up these videos every morning. You haven't gotten me yet. They're digging in. And they have inflicted far more pain on the Russian military than Vladimir Putin apparently ever imagined. Speaking to that end today, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. Here he is. And we're also seeing the Ukrainians put up a very stiff and determined resistance on their capital city. I and mean, they have made it very difficult for the Russians to, to continue to move ahead. We believe that the, uh, based on what we know of what their plans were, that they are behind schedule, that they have faced a stiffer resistance than they anticipated. As I mentioned, though, James Stavridis, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, former Navy Admiral, that it's Putin's strategic mistakes leading to this. And Kirby added to that comment today in the Pentagon briefing that not everybody should be partying yet. Russia is learning from what it is seeing now on day five of this conflict. And there are a lot of Russian forces just north of Kiev, about 15 miles, they say at this point, could be thousands of them with heavy armor. And if Vladimir Putin decides to send them into the capital, this could be a different story. We talk about it now with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, as I mentioned, with us, former commander, U.S. Army Europe, now Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. General, it's great to have you with us here on Bloomberg today. Thanks for being with us. Are you concerned about what the next couple of days might bring, or is this the way this war is going to go? Uh, I think this is the way it's going to go. And, and look, I've, I've been looking at the pictures like everybody else of this uh, large Russian formation that's north of Kiev. Yeah. And I am... I am astounded um, how poorly disciplined they are in broad daylight, massive convoy moving down the road, uh, given all that we have in terms of drones and, and the ability to target mm -hmm. uh, and strike convoys like that. I mean, the Ukrainians are going to crush uh, or certainly inflict huge casualties on them. So I, I'm a little bit um, uh, unimpressed, let me say, of the the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces I've been seeing so far. Uh, this, this is the opposite of what they should be doing in terms of a, of a tactical approach. Now, still, mass numbers counts for something, yeah. and, and uh, no doubt they will inflict a lot of uh, damage on Ukrainian forces as well. But it's useful to keep in mind that Kiev is a city of about 3.5 million people. Mm -hmm. Now, many of the people have left left town, but nonetheless, the, the very complex um, city infrastructure, the roads, the, all the massive buildings, it will be uh, very, very difficult for Russian forces to enter yes. and clear even big parts of the city. If they want to preserve it, of course, and I guess that would be my next question. Does Vladimir Putin want to take over Kiev and maintain the structures in the city so that he can move in essentially as it is now? Or, or will we see indiscriminate bombing? Well, that's a good, that's a, uh, a fair question. I think in the fairy tale that he was using in the weeks leading up to this, it was all about, you know, the poor Slavic people of Ukraine. He wants to liberate them from their Nazi leaders and, right. and this sort of nonsense. Yeah. Um, clearly, that was not his motivation. 
and they're already, I mean, it was two days ago, the whole world saw this missile that slammed into an apartment building, yep. and, and that sort of thing is going to increase. Um, I think he will do whatever it takes to, uh, number one, to decapitate the government, uh, and number two, to avoid the humiliation of his uh, forces being defeated and not able to take um, Kiev. Well, if, gosh, if he'll do whatever it takes, then... General, we can use our imagination. What does that look like? Are we going to see aerial bombing over Kiev? Well, I'm sure we're going to see more uh, Russian aircraft striking targets in and around Kiev. Um, they will have to do that. Otherwise, this big column of uh, uh, vehicles that's north of, uh, of Kiev will continue to get hammered by uh, Ukrainian forces. Yeah. So um, I, I do expect we're going to see. I mean, these are the same guys. You remember in the in the first Chechen war, they were frustrated because they could not defeat the Chechens, That's right. and so they they destroyed the city of Grozny. Uh, and I think we're going to see some of that um, attempted, but I don't think they have the logistical tail um, to sustain rockets and artillery and bombing. I mean, hmm. we're already getting reports that they're running out of certain munitions. They're running out of gas, general. Uh, yeah, which is ironic that the uh, sure of all would run out of gas. But again, this I think this points to the uh, lack of professional training and ability that they so grossly underestimated their ammunition and fuel consumption rates. Yeah, Europe is sending more hardware to Ukraine. Even the Germans are. In general, there was a story over the weekend that a, a bunch of, uh, of MiG-29s, of fighter jets, are on their way to Ukraine as well. Or do they have the pilots and the people to operate them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, most of the Warsaw, former Warsaw Pact countries still have um, equipment, aircraft, and vehicles mm-hmm. um, that were, you know, it was all the same. So um, helicopters, uh, jets, um, there are definitely pilots in, from the Ukrainian Air Force that would be able, with a very short amount of time, be prepared to uh, operate those. The key will be, um, do they have uh, airfields and the maintenance necessary uh, and can they protect those airfields from the inevitable uh, Russian attacks? We still have so many questions. We'd love to stay in touch with you as we seek answers. General Ben Hodges with us, former commander, U.S. Army Europe, now with the Center for European Policy Analysis, walking us through this here on the Fastest Hour in Politics. This is Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York, and we'll reassemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It was Rick Davis who famously said on this broadcast that Russian soldiers were known for drunkenness and sloth. And after hearing General Hodges there describe the laziness of Russian troops, I'm thinking he was on to something. Is that really why Ukraine is holding off its much larger neighbor five days in? Russia's nowhere near Kiev. And how long can it do this? We reassemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and the aforementioned Rick Davis 
think you were ahead on this one, Rick. I know that that's not necessarily a new reputation, but is that what's going on? Ukraine has passion. Russia has laziness. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, the Russian army has never distinguished itself in battle. And so why should they start today? Uh, you had to think that with 190,000 troops amassed on the border, they would do uh, a lot more damage a lot quicker than they've done. But uh, you got to give it to the Ukrainian people. Nothing I said should undermine the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives in their country. Absolutely. And they're, then they're acting as such. And we could only do as much as we can to give them the necessary tools and implements. As the general said, you know, if they had the right equipment— uh, they could decimate the Russian lines as, that are currently configured. Well, right now it's it's guerrilla warfare, right? They're ambushing these lines that are just, I guess, plain to see from, as the general mentioned, uh, from a drone or anything else for that matter. And I guess we're helping with reconnaissance. But Rick, why haven't they moved in? I mean, they've doesn't Vladimir Putin at least have numbers and hardware? When it yeah, comes he's having a hard time getting them around. I mean, the f initial uh, estimates that I've seen reported are that uh, the early surge. Um, um, uh, allowed them to get deeply into the country. But uh, the, the, the terrain is not frozen, right? You heard all this talk about like, oh, these tanks need to drive around on frozen ground. That's why they're all lined up on a road because <laughs> the ground's like a marsh. Right. They t put those tanks in them and they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that makes them sitting ducks. So they, they've miscalculated repeatedly. They've now outstripped their supply lines and so they can't refuel. And so these, 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 these units are uh, running out of power. Yeah. And uh, the Ukrainians, they have very versatile and mobile systems. We've given them enough tow missiles to knock out every, every plane, train, and automobile that the Russians have brought into that country. And they're making good use of them, but they, they got them deeply into the country so that resupply was going to be a tr problem. And now the Ukrainians are taking advantage of it. So how about that old line uh, from your former boss, John McCain, Rick, a country, oh, a gas station masquerading as a country. They don't even have the gas. Yeah, you cannot repair Putin's damage that he's done to his own image and the country's image as a, a military power around the world. And, and, and we haven't seen the end of this story. He's trying to play brinksmanship with his nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and this military has still a lot of running capability. Uh, there, there are a lot of troops still amassed on that border that they can bring in. So uh, this is not the end of the story, but uh, you got to give it to the Ukrainians for, for taking a country that had bluffed us all into thinking that they were amassing a huge military and sophisticated strength, and it's withering in the face of uh, average citizens uh, fighting yeah. for their for their country. Jeannie, did you watch Donald Trump the other night over the weekend at CPAC? I did not spend my weekend watching Donald Trump, but I did hear what he said, Joe. <laughs> well, we talked about this last week, right? The, you know, remember the gushing? Uh, Trump called Vladimir Putin a genius, smart, Mike Pompeo with the elegantly sophisticated uh, line, I believe. So a lot of folks were listening to Donald Trump uh, at CPAC, it moved to Orlando, and he was, uh, he was the, the big closer on Saturday night. He did say that the invasion was wrong, but he still couldn't help but to call Vladimir Putin smart. Here he is. The problem is not that Putin is smart, which of course he's smart, but <laughs> the real problem is that our leaders are dumb. Ah. We heard that a lot of times on the campaign trail, so that one's coming back. Now, as the president, as President Biden prepares to deliver his State of the Union address tomorrow, which will be watched and parsed by people around the world, Putin remains the elephant in the room with a portion of the Republican Party led by, yes, Donald Trump. You remember what he said before? That's what he said over the weekend, and this came up on the Sunday shows specifically. 
ABC this week with George Stephanopoulos. He had Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas. Not a fan of Vladimir Putin, or we didn't think at least. This is Armed Services Committee, Senate Intelligence Committee. And my goodness, he just, Stephanopoulos could not get him to condemn Donald Trump's praise of Putin. It was not for a lack of trying. I'm going to try to walk you through this because I couldn't believe this as I'm watching with my coffee on a Sunday morning. Number one, George Stephanopoulos, would you condemn what Donald Trump said, Senator Cotton? George, you've heard what I have to say about Vladimir Putin, well, that he is a ruthless dictator who's launched a naked, unprovoked war of aggression. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you know, what about the former president, Donald Trump, and what you know, he said about Putin? Would you condemn that, Senator? George, if you want to know what Donald Trump thinks about Vladimir Putin or any other topic, yeah. I encourage you to invite him on your show. Oh. I don't speak on behalf of other politicians. They can speak for themselves. I speak on behalf of Arkansans. Mm. Well, but of course, you're a big Trump supporter, and well, you hated Vladimir Putin there, Senator Cotton. I'm just, well, just want to come back around one more time. Would you condemn him live now on Sunday morning? Again, George, if you want to talk to the former president about his views or his message, well, I, you can have him on your show. Right. Well, you said that already. Do we have another one? Or is that, there's another one. Okay, well, I'm going to come around one more time. Senator Cotton, I'll just play it. George, again, I don't speak on behalf of other politicians. They can all speak for themselves. I'm delivering my message to you, which I said has been clear, whether Barack Obama was president, whether Donald Trump was president, and now whether Joe Biden was president. Jeannie, is this a field day for Democrats? It certainly is, and I, uh, you are a... You did that very well, Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get something out of him for you. Yeah, you really, really did try. Um, you know, this is the best news that Joe Biden can have going into this, uh, you know, State of the Union. That and the removal, you know, the, the CDC's announcement on masks. Mm-hmm. You know, the Democrats have been con- really worried post Afghanistan that Republicans would hit them hard on being weak. It becomes tougher, or Joe Biden on being weak. It becomes tougher and tougher for them to do that when they can't get their act together and condemn somebody like Putin, who has launched an attack on a sovereign nation. And you have a senator from Arkansas sitting there on a Sunday morning. You know, you had other Republicans, Mitt Romney did condemn over the weekend, but you have somebody like Tom Cotton, very, very frightened or frightened enough of what would happen to him if he tried to take uh, Trump on. That is a bad sign for Republicans and very good for Democrats. Well, I guess I'll spin the question around for you, Rick. Do voters, do Republican voters care about this conversation? Yeah, some Republican voters care about this conversation. I mean, there's still a very strong vein inside the Republican Party that's hawkish when it comes to Vladimir Putin and uh, the ruthless thug that he is and how he uh, destabilizes domestic, you know, uh, democratic regimes all over the world. Yeah. So sure, yeah. I mean, a lot of Trump voters care? Absolutely not. You know, they care what uh, Donald Trump tells them to care about. You know, and, and, and Donald Trump, you know, comes out of this thing. Uh, one of the controversies that existed in his presidency was trying to hold up, and he, he did hold up, uh, lethal aid to, to Ukraine uh, in order to try and get Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, right. and, and so here's a guy who has just no standing on this topic, who speaks out. And it's not a profile in courage for Tom Cotton or any Republican who doesn't denounce this kind of <laughs> right. Mitt Romney, on the other hand, was asked about this on CNN. He was asked about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. Uh, somewhat separate. This is not a Trump thing. He was asked about, as well, their uh, meeting with white supremacists, the, the response 
uh, was a reference to the old line he said from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Quote, morons. I've got morons on my team, he said. So it's on to the State of the Union tomorrow night. We've talked a little bit this hour about what the president's going to say. I'm wondering about how everyone's going to look, and I'm not talking about the clothes they're going to wear tomorrow night. I'm wondering about masks. I've started asking any lawmaker who dares to talk to us whether they plan to mask up tomorrow because they changed the policy, right? It's going to be mask optional inside the House chamber. Here's Congressman Jim Clyburn. Yes, I wear one uh, whenever uh, I feel comfortable wearing it and whenever uh, the policy is dictated. Okay. Not so much, though, for Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas. Well, I think the CDC rules in the chamber have magically uh, said we do not have to wear a mask in the chamber. And so having worn one for two years in the chamber, I think I'll take the opportunity to be maskless. Will the majority be maskless tomorrow night, Jeannie? I think they will. And this is good sign for President Biden. I'm hoping yeah. he comes in without a mask, um, but, but we'll have to see. You think he's got a mask on tomorrow night, Rick? Oh, yeah. I mean, he'll wear yeah. one at least into the chamber because right. he'd be surrounded by Democrats who all have their masks on. My real question is, will the Supreme Court come in with a mask? <laughs> How about the, the Defense Department? Will the right. Joint Chiefs Rick have a mask? Rick and Jeannie, tomorrow night, special coverage, State of the Union. Here's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1984, Michael Jackson wins an unprecedented eight Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year for Thriller and Record of the Year for Beat It. Beat it. Just beat it. To date, that's the most number of Grammys won in a single night. Several other hits and awards later in 1997, Jackson was included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the first time as part of the Jackson 5 with his brothers and later inducted as a solo artist in 2001. In 2006, the King of Pop was named by Guinness World Records as the most successful entertainer of all time. Three years later, in the week following his death, Jackson became the first artist to sell more than one million digital tracks in one week, 2.6 million tracks to be exact. And in 2014, yet another posthumous record, Jackson became the first artist in history to score a top 10 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 in five different decades. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. What a great job, Renita Young. Thanks to everyone for cramming into the fastest hour in politics. Meet you tomorrow for the Super Bowl, State of the Union. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.